Isaiah chapter 25. So, as you may recall, in Isaiah chapter 24, the prophet is giving us a glimpse into the great tribulation and all of the difficulty that is there. In the midst of it, he proclaims that his people, the Lord's people, will continue to worship and exalt him. So when you begin in chapter 25, that's exactly where the prophet picks up, was with the concept that God is going to continue to be praised. Verse 1, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithful and truth. So this idea that right from the beginning of chapter 25, the prophet looks to the majesty of the Lord and how he's worthy to be praised, even though there is this judgment, even though there is this tribulation that the prophet has told us and forewarned us of, which, you know, for us here this evening, that's still ahead. Uh, You know, the earth is going to experience God's wrath. Commonly, people will look at the tragedies that are going on today and they'll, you know, attribute those to God. They'll say, you know, that that tornado, it was an act of God. The flood was an act of God. When in fact, what it is, is the results of sin. God created this earth to be beautiful and majestic and to, to provide for us. And Adam and Eve had free will and they were tempted and chose to obey Satan who had tempted them. Romans 6.16 says, Who you obey, that is your master. Whether it be sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. What we obey, that's our master. Adam and Eve obeyed Satan. Eat of the tree, he said. He tempted them. They obeyed. He became their master. Jesus himself spoke of Lucifer, Satan, as being the god of this world. And so for now, as we're experiencing these horrible things, you read the headlines, you see the suffering of innocent children, your heart breaks. That's the result of sin. That's not God's wrath. God's wrath is yet to come. It's going to be poured out on an unbelieving world. He's going to take his church off from this planet, and those that have rejected him are going to experience full force. God's wrath. It's an unspeakable time. As that was described, Isaiah turns and glorifies God, speaks of his wonders, speaks of his great majesty, his counsel of old. You know, Isaiah 24, just a chapter back, verse 14, you know, speaking in the midst of that, he said, They shall lift up their voice, they shall sing for the majesty of the Lord, they will cry aloud from the sea. The righteous, those that during the tribulation surrender themselves to the Lord, they're going to praise the Lord. They're going to be. They're going to have that joy in their heart, even though their circumstances you know, around them will be horrific. They'll understand the glory and the majesty of the Lord. When we are in the midst of suffering, but we can recognize, oh, there's the hand of God in the midst. It makes the suffering somehow something that we can endure. 
that that God is presenting himself. You know, when, and I think maybe we've all experienced that, that it, it, we don't have that sense. We can't see him in the trial. Oh, the despair that can set in. You know, we can do that thing where we kind of drum it up in our heart, like, you know, God is good. I'm going to trust him anyway. And, uh, you know, when he's not visible, when it's not evident that he's there, it's much more difficult. When we're in the midst of it, it can be even, you know, ten times worse than that. God's presence known makes it something that we can endure. You know, so here, you know, the prophet is saying that. He knows, you know, for the most part, the rest of the nation has fallen into idolatry. But he himself declares at the beginning of this verse 1, you are my God. He'll say everybody else is going their own way. You know, even those that declare, oh, I'm a believer, you know, but they're trusting in other things. Isaiah makes it very plain. No, God is my God. The Lord is my God. You know, anybody can you know, go ahead, trust in your money, trust in your bank account, trust in your doctor, trust in your prescriptions, trust in your stuff. I'm going to trust in the Lord, is what he says. God is my God. And, you know, I'm going to exalt him. I will praise your name. He's showing us that worship is based on a decision, not an emotion, right? Because, you know, if you're in the midst of the fire, if you're in the midst of the trial, there's no emotion there inspiring you to you know, raise your hands and pour your heart out to God. It has to be a calculated decision. But no, I'm, I'm going to praise the Lord in the midst of this thing. And that's where he is. He's you know, giving that example to us, you know, for you have done wonderful things, he makes that statement. You know, while Isaiah is describing the great tribulation, he remembers the Lord has done wonderful things. And, you know, in that we should follow his example in our difficulties, remember the wonderful things the Lord has done and praise him. You know, it, it is, it's very good. People say, oh, you you know, you you have a blind faith. You, you know, you just you just believe. You're you're empty heart, empty mind. I've seen the work of the Lord in my life. I, in the midst of difficulties, we can sometimes just concentrate on that. If we lift our head up out of that for a moment and look back across our history with the Lord, were there not magnificent things that occurred along the way? You know, can we look beyond ourselves into history? as we open the word of God and begin to see, oh, here's Joseph in the midst of trial and betrayal and heartache and imprisonment, wrongfully accused, and he's worshiping. Here's Job, who's tormented and going through you know, illness and trials and fire, and his friends again accusing him of being a sinner, and yet he praises God. Lifting your eyes up, beyond your current circumstances and looking to the majestic work of the Lord will allow you to praise him. You know, if you get the microscope out and just slide your problem underneath the lens, you know, and get really focused on what the current difficulty is, uh, then there you go. That's all that's going to be pouring out of your heart and out of your mouth. You need to look beyond where you are. You know, and you can look the opposite direction too, right? Even if you can't look back and see 
great and wonderful things piled up. You can look forward to, well, hey, you know, if the worst thing imaginable happens, and in just a few minutes I breathe my last, <laughs> I'm going to enter the presence of the Lord. I don't have to deal with any of this junk anymore. So looking to the wonderful works, well, we have hope in Christ. You know, I last night in jail ministry, I'm talking about the suffering of Jesus Christ. I can see on the faces of the men there, and I asked, you know, how many of you guys grew up in and around churches? All the hands in the room, 14 men, 15 men, their hands went up in the room. I've grown up in and around churches. They've heard it all their lives, the suffering of Jesus Christ. And I take them from the Garden of Gethsemane through Jesus Christ's burial and say, now, do you, do you accurately understand that this man for the stress that he was under in the Garden of Gethsemane, began to burst capillaries in his skin, which is something I've seen on two separate occasions in my own life. People under such stress that as they were just holding in all of that emotional and physical pain they were dealing with, began to break capillaries in their cheeks, bleed right through their skin. I've seen it twice in my life. Jesus Christ is breaking capillaries and sweating great drops of blood for the pain and agony of separation from his father that lies ahead of him. He goes, six, 600 Roman soldiers come into the garden to arrest him. Okay? It isn't just a small little band. When the scripture tells us that a cohort was given to the priests to go and arrest Jesus, that's 600 soldiers arrive, and they start beating him immediately. As soon as he comes into the house of Annas and Caiaphas, uh, they are questioning him under beatings. They rip his beard out. They pound a crown of thorns into his head. The beating continues until they put a bag over his head. Well, you can see the shot coming. right? You can fade away from it a little bit. If you're blind to what's about to hit you, it is so much more devastating. Scourged, often I hear people talk about how he received 39 lashes. 39 lashes was the Levitical law. That was Jewish law. There's a point to this within the subject we're talking about. 39 lashes was Jewish law. He was handed over to the Romans. They, they ripped people apart with a cat of nine tails for two to five minutes, head to foot. They commonly liked to suspend them off the ground between two posts where they were hung in an X naked, they would shred their whole body, top of their head to the sole of their feet. Taken from there, nails driven through his forearms. That was not the hand because it would tear out through. The Romans knew that. They would drive it through the wrist so that the body would hang on the metacarpal bone. Through his feet, a sword a spear driven underneath his seventh rib. He'd been dead for nearly an hour, around an hour, when they pierced him because blood and water flowed out. The, the blood around his heart had separated into plasma and platelets. Water, blood and water poured out of his side. Dead, dead as a doornail. They watched him be buried and three days later, he appears in their apartment to talk to them. 
This whole idea that Jesus like fainted, you know, and they wrapped him up. And three days later, he was like, oh, gee, where am I? You know, woke up in the tomb. No, he was dead. This is why, you guys, when it came to each of their lives, when they were about to be put to death, they said, go ahead and kill me. Because I've seen Jesus Christ die and rise from the dead, and he promised me that same resurrection. So you go ahead and do whatever you want to. In the midst of our trial, the wonderful works, right? We can look at Jesus Christ's resurrection and say, whatever life's got to deal me, I can trust that. I can trust in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those men all trusted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ per having seen the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He had the marks of that torment upon his body. I suspect he looked like an entirely different man. You ever seen somebody that's been through a fire? The scarring on their body, right? Someone that's been lashed by the Romans and shredded to pieces, punched out and had their beard ripped out of their head and crucified, right? He said to Thomas, do you need to put your fingers in this wound right here? If those wounds were in his wrists and in his side, then seemingly the rest of them must have been there, right? And yet he lives. And they're witness to it. They're witness to the life of Jesus Christ resurrected. The wonderful works of the Lord. You know, when Isaiah says, your counsels of old are faithful and true, it reminds us, how trustworthy God's Word is. Think of Psalm 1 telling us to avoid the counsel of the ungodly. You know, to embrace the ancient counsel of God's Word. I always, when I talk about this and encourage people to trust God's Word, and I can see them in the process of rejecting it, in the church or out of the church, I'm always reminded of Jeremiah 6, verse 16. Where the prophet said, thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see. Ask for the old paths where the way is good and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your soul. But they said, we will not walk in it. Oh, that old Christianity. Oh, that old Bible. It was written by men. It's been changed over time. I'm not going to listen to that. Yeah, okay. Go ahead. That's why the world is in the condition that it is in right now. That's why this week our government is saying if children are born alive, it's still legal to abort them. I mean, just ask them straight out. How do you abort a living child? That's always been called murder. Always. The Democratic Party has become the party of infanticide. Murderous, wretched people running our country because they've rejected the old paths. They've rejected the ancient counsel of God's word. They think they know better. And here we go. You mark my words. The elderly amongst us are next. You know, oh, you know, we want to be progressive like the Europeans. Yeah, while children are able to experience Physician-assisted suicide without their parents' consent. 
Reject God's word. See where it takes you. Watch where embracing the wicked counsel of the world brings us. We're headed there. Rapidly. Fast. We're experiencing it. This destruction of our nation, our world around us. Verse 2, For you have made a city a ruin, a fortified city a ruin, a palace of foreigners to be a city of no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, the strong people will glorify you. The city of the terrible nations will fear you. Now, we don't know specifically what city he's referring to here in chapter 25. You know, often when he refers to a city, he tells us, you know, the burden of Tyre, the burden of Egypt. We know who he's referring to. We don't here. What we do know is the concept is true. That when God judges a people, a nation, or a city, he's righteous in doing so. When he brings his wrath against it, it will be good, right, and proper. Because they've become a people that are rejecting him, and they are going to destroy themselves and everyone around them. It, it's time to be done with them. God gets to say that. People don't like that. Oh, God, judgmental. How, wrath, how, could, who, how does he dare? He is the one who gives life to all things. So he is the one who has the option to take it away. Life belongs to him. My life, your life. If you're sitting here right now, totally rejecting God, your life is not your own. You weren't somewhere in the cosmos saying to yourself, I got to give myself life. God gave you life. And so, if you have abused it to the point where he says you're deserving of judgment, and he says I'm going to take it away from you, he's righteous in doing so. There's nothing you get to say about it. Verse 4. For you have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat, for the blast of the terrible ones is a storm against the wall. You will reduce the noise of the aliens, that's the foreigners who come in, as heat in a dry place, as heat in the shadow of a cloud. The song of the terrible ones will be diminished. God brings strength to the poor and needy. That's a wonderful thing because they have no capacity. We have no capacity. In, in our weakness, in our poverty, we have no ability to give ourselves health, strength, or riches. God alone does that. You know, if we're sitting here thinking, well, I'm relatively well off. No, you're not. <laughs> the Lord specifically says to those who are well off, mourn and weep because of your poverty. You know, our, our riches diminish, diminish us spiritually very often. You know, those that are impoverished but rich in the Lord, the Lord declares them to be wealthy. It is the wealth of the Lord that we desire, and the Lord gives us that. When it seems like we're surrounded by storms, as these verses say, when the heat of our circumstances is overwhelming, when those that are wicked seem to be celebrating around us 
God is our refuge. You know, it, it, it drives me crazy. I have, to, I have to stop reading the news. I don't know about you. Just the nonsense that's just constant. And uh, when I turn my eyes and my heart back to God's Word and worship Him, I, I find such a hiding place, a refuge in that the world, you know, I don't know if I'm shrinking away from the world or the world's shrinking away from me, but. It's a refuge, a fortress to be able to do that. I can't encourage us enough to find our strength and our hiding place in God and in His Word. You know, I, I uh, long ago, a friend of mine in ministry encouraged me. I was just talking about a number of stresses in my life, and he just said, where's your prayer closet? And I said, oh, you know, I pray, and we talked about you know, a number of things, and he let me ramble, and he said, yeah, but where's your prayer closet? And he just kept coming back to that. You know, Jesus saying, you know, don't be like the Pharisees who pray in the open, but when you pray, go in to your, your closet or your room and shut the door in private. Where's that place where you get away and pray with the Lord? And from that moment forward, I started developing that. Getting alone, right? Because it's very hard in this culture to get alone. Stinking cell phone follows you everywhere. You know what I'm saying? To get alone with the Lord. The habit that I developed back then was, I've said it to you countless times, haven't I? My Bible, my notebook, and a pen. That's where I'm going. And the notebook usually doesn't contain a list of things I'm delivering to God. It's empty. You know, or at least the pages where I'm going to turn to are empty. I go with my Bible, my pen, and my notebook to hear from God, to receive from Him. Lord, speak to me. And you open up and begin to read. And there is His voice guiding you, the refuge that is the Lord. It's available to all of us. Don't neglect it. Don't shirk the responsibility. 25-6. And in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a, fine, <coughs> a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. This celebration, this joyous feasting. So again, right as he's, giving us the understanding of the tribulation that is to come. He's saying to those that are righteous believers, the Lord is going to provide you a feast. The Lord, Lord is going to provide you with a celebration beyond your imagination. If you consider Revelation chapter 19, verse 9, it says, Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. The idea is in Isaiah 25, a victory banquet. You know, the, the awards ceremony at the end of the war, when things are all completed and finally over, all that have been involved in the conquests are gathered together to celebrate. That'll be an amazing experience. To, to experience the victory over death and hell and sin 
and Lucifer that Jesus Christ accomplishes and to sit down and feast with him over that victory in celebration. That'll be a, a cool day. You know, I had an opportunity years ago. I was filming it for the family, but uh, an elderly gentleman on his birthday, he was an avid motorcycle rider. His family had bought him a limited edition Harley Davidson, you know, and all these extravagant gifts. And he was a godly man, interestingly enough. And uh, they invited him to come to this occasion. He had no idea it was a celebration for his birthday. <laughs> and he walked through the door thinking that he was just coming with his wife and his children to talk to somebody about another event. And the room just erupted into explosions of congratulations and happy birthday. And literally, like, here's your motorcycle. Here are your gifts. And here are your... It was interesting to examine that from a godly perspective. You know, it's a worldly thing. But the this idea of Christ's victory and just being invited into the explosive celebration. That'll be a great day. All of this earth and its difficulties gone forever. That'll be a wonderful moment. You know, Matthew 26, verse 29, Jesus speaking, said, But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The idea of restraining ourselves from certain things that the, the world indulges in so that we might wait for that day. Delayed gratification. Set certain things aside that perhaps are permissible but not profitable. Set those aside and wait for the day where we drink the new wine with Jesus Christ, where there's no sin involved in the celebration, where the joy of his presence is what fills our hearts. That, that is something to long for. 25.7, And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people. So you follow this wording, it's really interesting. And the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. So the veil that is over all the nations. That keeps them from seeing God knowing him and loving Him, and obeying Him, God is going to destroy. He's going to get rid of that veil. You know, don't we want that? Don't we desire that? Don't we pray for that, right? You know, we have those people we minister to, we share with, we preach to them, and somehow they just don't see it. They just don't get it. We can't get through. Jesus Christ is going to destroy that veil. He's going to remove it so that they might be able to. And the veil that is on all of the nations. Second Corinthians chapter 3, beginning at verse 15, says, But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies 
on their hearts, speaking of the nation of Israel. The answer is, in verse 16, Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. People of this world will often say, seeing is believing. Well, it's actually the opposite. Believing is seeing. Oh, what do you mean? That sounds stupid. Well, if, if every thought and every moment is a rejection, a criticism, a resistance, you're never going to see anything. Right? We know that from the simplicity of life. If you come into a discussion with somebody that you're upset with and you're just you're bent on being mad, you ain't ever going to have any other discussion with them. You've got a predetermined way of looking at things. Open your heart and mind. Begin to look for the truth that's right in front of you. It's our resistance that veils the truth from our hearts more than anything. You know, death being swallowed up forever. It's interesting. Those that work within the medical field in the depths of microbiology are astonished with death because especially the human body is designed to repair itself indefinitely. Why does it not continue? What is aging? (laughs) That's literally a very perplexing thing. For science, built within us is the design of self-repair. That's not anywhere else. You know, you damage your frame, just rest. Yeah, good nutrient, good rest, cleansing water. Those are basic elements that will make you healthy. Why does death come upon us? Uh, Those within the genetics field are looking for that magic strain that causes the breakdown of the self-repairing DNA. What is going on? They're looking for an answer to death, to thwart it, to stop it. It's kind of freaky because some of the things that they're discovering actually lead them to think they might be able to conquer it. And if we sit here right now and go, oh, come on, read the book of Revelation again. Because it says in the book, men will seek to die and be unable to. Are they going to find that answer? Right as the wrath of God is being poured out on the planet? And now they find themselves in a tormented world beyond any hellish imagination. And they're unable to die? Wow, that would stink and then to enter the eternity in the presence of God. Tragic, if that's in fact where they're headed. Jesus Christ is going to wipe out death in the proper way, so that there's no aging, no death. Having created this place with that DNA of self-repair, we damaged it with sin, and that's what's causing death. That's what the Scripture tells us. That by one man, Adam, sin entered the world and death by it. Death came through sin. Jesus Christ is going to wipe out death by wiping out sin. 
It's going to be a beautiful thing to experience that. 1 Corinthians chapter 19, verse 54. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, this rotting, decomposing, puts on non-decomposing, this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. That will be an amazing day when Jesus Christ gives the answer to humanity. You know, Freud was perplexed by death and contemplated man's search for an answer to it, saying that he was fairly certain that in all of our searching we would never find the answer for it. If you're not looking to the author of life, you never will find it. Jesus is the answer to death. He gives this personal care and attention. He's going to wipe every tear from the face. It isn't that he's going to cause us to not have tears, not have sorrow. It's that he's going to have such personal attention to each one of us that he himself will wipe the tears away. That our relationship with him will be so personal, right? It isn't going to be. It's, it's hard. It's a, perhaps impossible for us to imagine that one individual would be capable of ministering to all of us, right? We have those personal friends that are close to us, perhaps. They send us the text message just at the right time. They minister to us in such a way. We're so grateful for that individual. And when they're not there, when they don't respond, when they don't call, you know, kind of let down. Jesus Christ is never going to miss. He's not a human being. He's not limited in the way we are. He's going to minister to our very soul in such a way that he will be the one responsible for quenching all of our anguish, for taking away all of our pain. That's a beautiful thought, wonderful thing that he alone is capable of. Now, this statement that he gives of how he, the rebuke of his people will be taken away. See, we each need to be rebuked because we're such filthy, rotten sinners. We drift so easy, as determined as each one of us is sitting here right now to be a good Christian believer and do the right thing. We're going to walk out the door and act like the knucklehead that we are. That's why... Grace is necessary, right? Because there's a certain level of responsibility that we do tackle, right? We're not punching people in the face anymore. You know, we shouldn't be drug dealers anymore. We, you know, shouldn't be fornicating anymore. But we do slip up and sin because we're sinners. So we need the grace of God and we need his rebuke. That says to my heart, Will, is that really how I would treat your wife when you're behaving like that? I need that sharp rebuke in my heart that says, Really? Are you going to be that angry with a person who just cut you off in traffic? I need that rebuke. Am I, there's going to come a day where he's going to take away the rebuke because it will be unnecessary. We won't even act that way. Wow. That'll be amazing. 
to wake up in the morning and not have to deal with me. Not have to face the day thinking, how am I going to contend with my filthy, rotten flesh that wants wicked things? Right? Because some days, right, we wake up and you can just tell, oh, this is going to be a battle. Right? Some days we wake up and we think, oh, this is going to be easy sailing. I'm in the spirit. I'm in love with the world. I want to serve everyone. Other days, you know, you're a stinking criminal as soon as your eyes open. The Lord is going to take that away. He's going to take away the need for review. What a wonderful thing. I long for that day. I long for the day where that's not here anymore. Oh, I contend with my flesh. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying this like, oh, I wake up some days and I just act like a jerk because, well, after all, it's just my flesh. That's not what I'm trying to imply at all. I recognize my flesh and I pounce on it as hard as I can to let the Lord conquer what's going on. But what a struggle some days to have that gone. What a beautiful thing to no longer have to contend with me. To be able to just walk in fellowship. 25.9, it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God, who we have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Now, <laughs> it's an interesting thing. and. The beginning of verse 9, you know, this is our God. We've waited for him. If we will confess him to the world right now, boldly make the claims. You know, I'm a Christian. Boldly make the claims. I'm a believer. Boldly make the claims. I believe the Bible is the word of God. You make these claims before the world. You stand up for the truth and you make the declaration for the world. When we will do that, the Lord owns us. If we will own him, he owns us. Luke chapter 12, verse 8 says, Jesus speaking, Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him, the Son of Man, will confess before the angels of God. We've got to own him right now. I, I think I've shared with you before. The most astonishing experience I had with this a number of years ago, I've had a few where people go, I'm a silent witness. But I had worked with a man who trained me for a company that I was working for, and I had been with him for weeks, just alone, he and I. I'm sharing my faith, talking about the Lord, ministry, all the things I'm involved with. He's just more or less like, yeah, great, rolling along with it. We're around customers, other people, right? I'm just being myself. We finally get with a group of co-workers and I'm talking about my faith and in the midst of it, he says, yeah, I'm a believer too. And I'm literally like, what? <laughs> like I've been with this guy for weeks and there's been all kinds of opportunity for him to share his faith with me, with other people. There's been no declaration. I've literally been him with him for weeks and I have had the mindset like I, I got to win this guy over. Like, like, he's not a believer. And I talked to him later, like, I'm astonished. Like, 
you know, okay, you know, you don't look like an axe murderer, I'll give you that, but I had no inclination that you were a believer. And he made that statement, I like to be a silent witness. And I explained to him that the term witness in the scripture is where we get the word martyr. It's actually the same word. You being put to death through the judgment of a court system, Roman or whatever, you know, throughout history and time, you being put to death because you're a believer. That's a martyr. A witness is equal to that. You don't get to be a silent, secret witness. You have to be a public witness for Jesus, right? The idea is literally witness like a court case. That, that your confession would prove Jesus. Your witness. That's the idea, right? You know, if you have suddenly been accused of murder, but you were at my house the whole weekend that they say you killed somebody, and I get to court to testify on your behalf and sit in the stand and say, no, I, I really don't want to say anything. I'm, I'm more of a silent witness. You're going to lose your mind. Because I'm there to testify on your behalf of who you really are. This man's not a murderer. He didn't commit this. He was with me. Instead, I sit and say, no, no, no. I just, I, 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 my, my knowledge and understanding is more personal. I like to just keep you know, what I know and what I understand to myself. I don't like to force it on other people. That's literally what Jesus is saying. Read again Luke chapter 12, verse 8. Also, I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him, the Son of Man, will confess before the angels of God. It's our job to be his witness, to speak of him and to share with people. Now, listen, you know, people take this too far. They get all dogmatic and they become jerks and they think that that's what God is calling them to do, you know, just like to be a jerk. And to label it, oh, that's me sharing my faith. Okay, There is a delicate method of sharing your faith that is necessary. But it better be, and I'm saying it to every one of you and to every one of us, it better be that the world knows that you're a believer. That the people you're around know. If you've been around them for some period of time and they're unaware of it, let me just very lovingly encourage you, you know, because the rebuke is necessary, right? You're failing at your job. Pick up the mantle and start letting the words roll out of your mouth. I, I, I stutter. I'm not a good speaker. I, I wouldn't do well. Listen, be beat red in the face, sweating great drops of blood and freaking out internally but open your mouth and speak for Jesus, would you? The world needs to hear it. The world needs to hear it. So, you know, when we see this whole idea, you know, the salvation, it's wonderful that it's his salvation, right? Not ours. Because if we were left to save ourselves, and we try to do that sometimes, right? We, we, we don't realize it, but we develop our own method and our own plan of salvation, right? I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do all of these things, and that'll make me acceptable to God. And God goes, okay, how about it? 
be the superhero Christian, go right ahead. And we fail miserably. We don't accomplish it. And as soon as we have driven ourselves right into the dirt, and we actually pick our face up and look at him and say, Lord, how do I do this? He says, well, you get your hands off the wheel. <laughs> and let me do it. I'm the source of salvation. Yeah, many of us have experienced it wholeheartedly. The idea that you know Jesus, we've tried to be our own salvation. You know, we we've tried to be perfect. We've tried to be better than every other Christian, and we found we're not. We're miserable, and we're making everyone around us miserable. Christ alone and His grace. 25.10, for on this mountain the hand of the Lord will rest, and Moab shall be trampled down under him, as straw is trampled down for the refuse heap. And he will spread out his hand in their midst as a swimmer reaches out to swim. The idea of just kind of putting his hand through them. And he will bring down their pride together with the trickery of their hands. The fortress of the high fort of your walls, he will bring down, lay low and bring to the ground, down to the dust. So after <coughs> the great tribulation, Jesus will rule on the earth from Mount Zion. And all of creation will know that the hand of the Lord rests upon that mountain. All of the world will know it. It's not, it's not going to be a thing where, you know, in far off countries, people will be saying, ah, well, I've heard of that, but I don't know if I really believe that. No, it is going to be that the God who made all of this is going to come to this earth and he's going to physically set up his throne on Mount Zion and rule the earth from that position. Anyone who is dumb enough individually or as a nation like Moab that he describes here to resist that will be crushed in the process. You have the choice both now and then. Experience the great blessing of God's hand resting upon your life. His authority, His work, His counsel, His worship resting upon your life. Or resist that hand and experience the judgmental trampling of His feet. People go, oh, I, I like the God of the New Testament more than the Old Testament. Here you are talking from the Old Testament, Isaiah and the judgment. I don't know if I like, I like Jesus in the New Testament. Turn to the New Testament in Revelation chapter one and see Jesus there before John with hair white as wool, eyes like coals of fire, dressed in white with a golden band around his chest, a sword that proceeds from his mouth that he kills all of his enemies with and his feet shining like finely polished brass. To what? Tread out the grapes of wrath. 
Oh, so much better to have him extend his hand of blessing upon our lives than to resist that hand and eventually experience the stomping of wrath that is sure to come to all who resist him. He will rule from Mount Zion. You know, right now, people are talking, oh, just Bible and this stuff in Israel. The stuff that's going on in Syria, the stuff that's going on in Damascus, the stuff that's going on in Moscow, the stuff that's going on in Korea, it's all spoken of in the Scripture. We're watching the Scriptures be fulfilled. Open up Ezekiel chapter 38 and understand there is a great cataclysmic war coming to the Middle East. All of those nations are going to stream down out of the north and invade and try to conquer, and they're going to be wiped out in the process. Every single one of these prophecies has been given. We talked about the fact that Isaiah prophesied over a thousand years ago that the Nile Delta would be dried up. Everyone mocked that in 1976. They built the Aswan Dam and destroy the Nile Delta. And then as you're reading through Isaiah, you realize, holy cow. This is exactly what Isaiah prophesied, down to the fact that he talks about how the snails are going to invade and destroy all of the reeds and all of the green vegetation. Because you don't have that flooding that washes them out to sea every year. They've destroyed the delta. And exactly as he's said, the destruction of nations is coming, it's going to come. Same as the delta exactly as he's going to rule from Mount Zion. All of these things will be fulfilled. Resist if you want. You're going to have to experience the judgment that follows. Put your bookmark there for a moment and turn over to Psalm chapter 2 with me. Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, down to verse 12. Ask of me, God speaking to the Son, God the Father speaking to God the Son, ask of me, I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges, rulers, literally, of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, right? Capital S-O-N. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled. But a little, just a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. God is going to bring his judgment and his wrath. I don't think it's going to be a massive destruction of nations. I, I think it's just going to be the worst of nations. When he sets up his kingdom, the most rebellious of them will be dumb enough to raise their head and experience the destruction that follows. And everybody else is going to go, gotcha. And live in obedience. Enforced righteousness. Want to rebel? Then you've got to experience the wrath. Now, in this, there's very powerful imagery in 
uh, Isaiah 25, 10 through 12 there, and Psalm, very powerful imagery that shows us we can either, as we said, experience that God's hand of blessing or His wrath that is poured out upon us. It's good, good to understand that God is offering those opportunities. You, you know, hopefully your mind flashes to passages from the Old Testament, the New Testament. You know, today I lay before you blessings and curses. You choose. God isn't, you know, pouring out curses upon people. God isn't even really pouring out blessings. He's setting the free will out before saying it's all available. You want blessing? Choose blessing. You want wrath? That's your choice. I, I, I <laughs> jail ministry is interesting, right? It's it's interesting how often those guys will sort of get themselves wound into discussions about their own wisdom, right? You know, they're they're kind of resistant to God's word, and as you're trying to lead them around to submitting to Jesus Christ and God's word, I mean, they've come to the Bible study, so there's 47 inmates, you know, there. And you know you got 15 of them in your Bible study. That's you know it's pretty good numbers. But they've they've chosen. And my point is, they've chosen to come and hear God's word. But as they're sitting there, you know, saying basically, I don't want to submit to God's word, and we get talking about it. You know, they're trying to explain how they know better. They know better than God's word, and I just wait. For that prime moment to say, so, you know, in your wisdom, that's your thinking process. And, I mean, wouldn't you agree that it's your wisdom that you're talking about that's caused you to be sitting here in orange with me? I mean, you know, <laughs> isn't that why we're here? Is it because of your wisdom? Isn't it time for you to abandon your wisdom and start relying upon God's wisdom? Choosing the blessings. Rather than the cursings, you're putting your hand in the wrong box, man. You know, you're extracting for yourself all of the pain. Just get your hand out of those places and let God start blessing your life. You know, those that do, we've, we've started to see a few of them showing up here from, from those Bible studies as they've been released. So just quietly sitting amongst us and starting to grow and learn. So pray for them. Pray for Cheryl, Lori, and the girls going in and ministering to the ladies. It seems to be a sort of, a, you know, a focus that the Lord is giving us. We had the school previously. You know, a lot of our energies were focused there. The Lord is shifting us around to... Focusing on jail ministry and, you know, the uh, recovery programs, the discipleship programs of CRD Arise, you know, those things. So be in prayer. You know, we're right. We want people to get under the blessed hand of the Lord and out from underneath the wrath-filled crushing of his feet. Experience the blessings of the Lord. So, well, we'll pick up at chapter 26. Uh, next week, why don't we stand and we'll pray. Father God, I thank you for your love and your grace in our lives. And I ask that you would um, fill our hearts 
with a worshipfulness that we would be attuned to your Holy Spirit. Lord, oh Lord we lift up Amanda Hill and uh, her circumstances, the amniotic fluid that's leaking. I pray that you would, six weeks early for that baby, I pray, Lord, that you would slow or halt the progress that's going on and allow for the full term and full development, Lord, that there would not be complications um, that they would have to contend with. Keep keep your blessed hand upon them as you have. Be with the family. All their very I know Sherry has a, an MRI on this Monday, Lord, they have to travel for that. Be be with them. Be their answer, their fulfillment. See all of their circumstances accomplished. Lord, help us to minister to one another, to minister to the hills. Lord, that our hearts and minds would be attuned to you and ready to be a servant. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.